The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. NetSuite by Oracle brings accounting, finance, inventory, and HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce costs everywhere. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. So head to netsuite.com slash wallstreet right now. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Foreign Edition. Saudi Arabia comes up with its latest explanation for what happened to journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Does this one make any more sense than any of the earlier ones? And global markets respond to a sell-off in the U.S. as people start uh, trying to figure out what the next step is for the global economy. You are listening to Foreign Edition from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. I am Joseph Sternberg, uh, speaking to you from our luxury podcasting studio on the banks of the River Thames in London. I am joined, as always, by my colleague on the line from a secure, undisclosed location, Hugo Restall. Hi, Hugo. Hi, Joe. And I think that we will jump right in with uh, the uh, you know one of the big uh, global political and increasingly economic stories of the day, which is Saudi Arabia. Um, I mean, this has been bubbling along for several weeks now. I know that our uh, editorial page colleagues have uh, discussed it also on uh, our Potomac Watch podcast. Uh, the sort of the U.S. uh, implications of this. But the story, of course, is the death under uh, mysterious circumstances, to put it generously, of uh, journalist Jamal Khashoggi, a uh, Saudi Arabian who had been a U.S. resident uh, writing columns for the Washington Post, uh, who disappeared in the Saudi Arabian uh, consulate in Istanbul, Turkey, uh, some weeks ago. And Hugo, the, the news today, if you can believe it, is that Uh, Saudi Arabia has come up with yet another story for what happened to Khashoggi in that consulate. They now say that actually he was killed and it was a premeditated killing. Uh, Previous versions of this had been that, no, he actually walked out of the consulate and then they claimed that there had been some sort of fight or there's uh, we've had theories about a rogue interrogation gone wrong. Um, Now they're saying it was premeditated. And, you know, what is so fascinating about this story to me is that we've been talking about, um, you know, the Saudi Arabian government, uh, especially under Prince Mohammed bin Sultan, as, you know, a body that was uh, really trying to reform itself. And yet, you know, you have this story evolving that is creating all kinds of diplomatic and economic tension uh, between the regime and many of its partners, especially the United States. And, you know, there's that old saw about how it isn't the crime, it's the cover-up. Well, here they can't even do the cover-up right. Right. It does seem a bit Nixonian to me. I mean, all these explanations are, uh, in in Nixon's words, a modified limited hangout uh, where they tried to uh, contain the damage and, you know, cut off a few of the diseased limbs in order to save the uh, the main tree, um, which would be Mohammed bin Salman, the, the crown prince, um, who is, uh, you know, in behaving in increasingly uh, erratic and, and dictatorial ways. Um, so all of these explanations, to me, uh, suggest that he was involved. I mean, uh, you know, if, if they had been able to get out and have a convincing explanation um, relatively early on, it, it might have been believable that he was not involved. But now, um, you know, everybody has to suspect that he was, and therefore 
he is compromised within uh, the Saudi system and, uh, you know, his enemies will be using this against him. And you have to worry about the stability of the, the Saudi state. I mean, we had this piece by Karen Elliott House, which I think laid this out very well, that, uh, you know, there are two ways he could go if if uh, if the opposition to him does uh, mount. One is for his father, the, the king, to uh, remove him, and the other would be for a violent, open struggle, which would be disastrous for uh, not only the country, but the region and the world. So, um, you know, the, the strong implication there is that perhaps the Saudi king does need to uh, remove MBS uh, in, a, in a timely fashion. Well, and the, you know, the timing uh, this week is particularly bad, uh, both for MBS and uh, you know for for Saudi Arabia and its relations with uh, other countries in general. Because this was supposed to have been the time when we were going to have this big economic summit that was uh, going to be yet another uh, you know form of coming out or debutante, debutante party for uh, the Saudi Arabian economy, because, of course, a big part of uh, MBS's program has been trying to attract foreign investors. And, you know, right at the moment that this Davos in the desert, uh, the you know, people were calling this economic summit is supposed to be happening, you have this political event intruding to remind people of just how fragile that economic story is. And now all of a sudden, instead of having this wonderful occasion that's hearkening the opening, the, the arrival in a, a new way of the uh, you know, Saudi Arabian economy, this notion that somehow um, you, know, you could recreate a, a, a Europe-style economy in the Middle East, you, you have this reminder that actually it remains a brutally repressive regime with a lot of political problems. Right. I mean, I, uh, MBS was trying to um, hold a system together that was increasingly, I think, uh, unsustainable. I mean, it's it was basically a system based on uh, sharing the spoils of, of the oil wealth among an elite. Um, and he wanted to try to um, reform that, um, rein in the corruption. I mean, he, he put all of his relatives and, and uh, minor princes and, and uh, business people who were, had their fingers in the, in the, in the pie, uh, combined them to the Ritz-Carlton and, and tried to extract their ill-gotten gains from them, um, tried to open the country to investment. But it reminds me a little bit of the, you know, the Lampedusa novel, The Leopard. I mean, uh, for things to stay the same, uh, everything is going to have to change. I mean... Uh, in order for the, the Saudi monarchy um, to survive, he really needed to change the system. But, uh, you know, when you start doing that, uh, uh, you know, you, you make a lot of enemies, you destabilize. And, uh, you know, I think that led him down the road of control freakery, um, you know, where he had to, uh, um, you know, be paranoid and and you know he was increasingly sleeping on his yacht you know to avoid uh, his enemies and so he he overstepped um with this uh, with this assassination um so you know it really shows the, the difficulty that a, a an authoritarian um state has in uh in trying to change because as soon as you uh 
as soon as you start to change, that's the most dangerous time. Uh, so, uh, you know, he's he's caught on the, on the horns of that dilemma. I, I mean, it does raise the, the question in my mind of really how sustainable uh, any of this is now. I mean, any of the political, you know, the limited political reforms that they've had, um, you know, under MBS, for example, allowing uh, women to finally drive in Saudi Arabia, or even uh, you know, any of the economic programs, which I mean, one, one has to say, uh, there was an awful lot of talk about economic reform under MBS. It wasn't always clear exactly how much had happened yet. And I mean, now I find myself wondering really how sustainable a lot of this is. I mean, it, it, now certainly with this Davos and the Desert event, uh, there had been a lot of questions about whether business executives should uh, attend that. Yeah, you know, I've I've kind of had mixed feelings about that. I think that there's a certain amount of, uh, you know, you overburden the business community by expecting them to, uh, you know, take the lead on diplomatic issues such as uh, engagement with Saudi Arabia and, and the like. But you know, I think that actually points to the bigger danger here, which is actually the the nature of some of these diplomatic relationships now. I mean, how how does the relationship with the the U.S. Congress, for example, look? After uh, you know something like the, the killing a, a, a fellow who was writing columns for the Washington Post, which is the hometown newspaper for the United States government, um, you know certainly it, it is going to you know pick at a lot of people in, in Washington who already had qualms about the Saudi regime's uh, human rights record. I mean, it, it just really seems like a, a real danger of backsliding here and you know, reaching the point where maybe there is some damage that is going to take a very long time to overcome. Right. I, I think Donald Trump had it right on this and calling it the worst cover up ever. Um, and our editorial warned that, uh, you know, if, if if Donald Trump doesn't get in front of this um, in terms of, of being tougher with the, the Saudis on this case, uh, there is a danger that the U.S. Congress will uh, take control of, of U.S.-Saudi policy, and uh, that that could turn out to be a very blunt uh, instrument indeed. So, um, you know, it it really does behoove the, the Trump administration to uh, to work behind the scenes to try to get a full accounting of this um, and get get all the damaging information out at once. And uh, and then figure out where Saudi Arabia and, and the U.S. go from there, um, rather than this, you know, steady drip of uh, of revelations and this and the Turks um, threatening to openly release all the information that they have. If there's one other thing I wanted to mention is that I think there are some interesting parallels here between uh, the Saudi Crown Prince and and Xi Jinping in terms of trying to uh, change the system. Uh, Xi Jinping started out saying that he wanted a, a more market-based system, but in order to uh, consolidate his control, I mean, he he has also gone down the road of, of control freakery, and it's it's a, a real question now whether there is any economic reform in China. It looks increasingly like more state control and top-down uh, decision making. So, uh, you know, an interesting parallel there of of um, dictators who who start out with the best of intentions of wanting to make their country more open and and seeing the the benefits of uh, developed countries and their system, but their political system uh, is incompatible with that, and uh, they end up going down a, a very different road, um, which has uh, negative consequences both for 
the economy and uh, and the political system. Well, I really think that that is the important point here. Uh, and you know, the comparison to Xi Jinping, the, the Chinese president uh, who took office a few years ago and has been, uh, you know, seems to be waging an, an increasingly aggressive political crackdown on some of his uh, you know, opponents within the outside the regime. Uh, you know, I think it's an apt comparison just because it's a reminder that actually you can't uh, separate the economic and political reforms to the extent that people sometimes thought would be possible. Um, and so, you know, if you have a, a ruler who's claiming to be an economic reformer without also committing to some of the political reforms, you maybe the, the message here is, uh, you know, that people need to be a little warier of that. But we've been talking about the uh, diplomatic crisis engulfing Saudi Arabia, and this is Foreign Edition from The Wall Street Journal. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com consulting. IBM. Let's create. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Foreign Edition. Welcome back to Foreign Edition from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. I'm Joseph Sternberg in London, and I've got my colleague Hugo Restall on the line. And we are going to uh, shift gears now in the second half of today's podcast and talk about the global economy, because, of course, the, the big market story this week, Hugo, uh, has been a major uh, sell-off again on Wall Street. Uh, so the, the you know major U.S. stock indexes are now uh, you know have given up all of their gains for 2018. Uh, that has triggered a lot of uh, concern in Asia, where we had another sell-off overnight in response to the U.S. market developments. Uh, you know, Europe, uh, as we speak today on uh, Thursday afternoon, seems to have uh, fared a little bit better, which I, I guess in this case means somewhat less pessimistically than the other two markets. And, you know, I, I think to, to set the stage here, it seems that the, the real story is that, um, you know, there seems to be a certain concern about whether... Um, you know, we've gotten the mileage that we're going to get out of the U.S. growth story for right now. And, uh, you know, the Fed is normalizing interest rates, which is uh, in the U.S., which is causing investors around the world to think anew about, uh, you know, whether they have adequately been pricing a lot of the risks that they have been taking. And, you know, it seems that this kind of turmoil in the financial markets uh, around the world is a consequence of this process of investors trying to figure out what to make of a, a new world where maybe the monetary policy in the U.S. It's not normal, but it's not quite as abnormal as it's been before. And that seems to be accentuating a bunch of other risks around the world. I mean, here in Europe, you've got a, a dispute between Italy and the European Union over the, the government's budget. Um, you know, you've got a, a, a bunch of uh, questions about you know surrounding various emerging markets in Asia. Um, I guess that that's my my take on it. And you know, what, what, uh -huh. what 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 exactly do you think is going out in, in in Asia in terms of the story? Well, it's been pretty ugly in Asia. Um, there have been some big falls uh, today in Japan, Korea, uh, Hong Kong market down a fair bit. Um, and uh, Australia. So, um, you know, I think to some extent this is um, 
this is the normal situation in that when there's a, a Fed tightening cycle, um, the the rest of the world, you know, really can suffer. Um, you know, we're not in. There's been a lot of talk of decoupling um, between the U.S. and Asia, and uh, you know that that has happened to a certain extent. It's not the U.S. Uh, demands for good doesn't drive uh, the, the Asian economies uh, in the same way that it used to. But the U.S. still does run the world monetary policy to a large extent. And when uh, the Fed tightens, the, uh, the, the pool of liquidity drains away around the world. And, uh, you know, you see the, uh, particularly the, the developing markets, um, the emerging markets, um, they are uh, faced with a quandary of, uh, you know, pressure on their exchange rate. Um, do they uh, tighten along with the Fed to defend the exchange rate, even though that's going to cause more pain um, domestically in their, their real economy? And then uh, if that happens, uh, if their economy slows, do, do uh, investors lose confidence in, uh, in the economy and in the ability of their, their central bank to defend the currency? And you, get, you can get into a vicious cycle as, uh, as Asia did in 1997, um, where actually uh, defending the currency and tightening, um, you know, leads to more attack and by speculators, and uh, you know, then then there's a very uh, very difficult choice for the uh, governments and how to respond. You know, you talked about decoupling, and I think that it's worth digging into that because I actually think that there is a, a form of decoupling going on right now, although not the one that people usually, uh, you know, the, the sense that people normally associate with that term. So, you know, when I first uh, showed up in Hong Kong about a dozen years ago, and this was before the uh, financial panic and the Great Recession, the the buzz was all about this concept of decoupling, which meant that, you, you know, before uh, that period, there had always been a strong connection between economic growth and the U.S. and economic growth in Asia. The okay. idea behind decoupling was that, you know, suddenly Asia would be able to grow on its own regardless of what was happening in the U.S. Now, I, I still, you know, for the reasons you set out, have a, a lot of qualms about whether there really is that kind of independence between, uh, you know, from Asia and the U.S. now. I, the decoupling that I find a little perplexing that we seem to be seeing around the world, but particularly in the, in the U.S. markets and also in Asia right now, is a form of, I guess, what I would think of as decoupling between uh, Wall Street and Main Street, or the you know the Asian equivalents of that, because. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the sell-off in the U.S. is happening against a backdrop where actually what's going on in Main Street, the real economy, is still reasonably healthy. I mean, we've had good uh, business investment this year. We've had strong economic growth. We've got, uh, you know, record low unemployment, uh, you know, very strong employment numbers. And yet you still have all of this, uh, you know, disruption going on in the financial market. And I, you know, my sense is that the same thing is happening in Asia in response to, to Fed policy moves or what is happening in terms of the, the flows of financial capital is, is becoming somehow divorced from what's actually happening on the ground with economies that actually over the past uh, 10 or 20 years have become much more diversified or much less exposed to crazy uh, credit risks, uh, you know, have a much healthier basis for, you know, sustained, you know, genuine economic growth on the ground? Well, yeah, I think a, a lot of Asian economies have um, have prepared relatively well for, for a storm. Um, after the 2013 taper tantrum, um, you know, it, it was kind of a wake-up call 
Um, and they've also accumulated a, a lot of foreign exchange reserves. Um, so they're, they're less vulnerable than they were. Um, but, uh, you know, China itself is, uh, you know, it's now the second largest economy and it has significant debt problems. Um, and it's had a massive monetary expansion. Um, and then Japan has also had a, a, a very dramatic QE, uh, much more dramatic than, than the Fed or the ECB. Um, so, you know, you have all of this, this expansion of, of money supply. Um, and uh, when it goes into reverse, I think that that's uh, you know, very unsettling for markets. And it can, the markets then can lead the uh, the real economy, um, you know, we what we see um, with this market contraction that which China in a way has led. I mean, China's stock markets have been have been falling, uh, you know, all this year, and uh, that is is going to have knock on effects for availability of credit for for real companies, um, and eventually, I think that we'll see that. Um, reflected in in the growth numbers. Now, in this connection, I think we also need to talk about Europe. Um, My my little patch of the globe uh, up here in London, because this is the part of the world where actually I think that there are uh, serious concerns about the the Main Street economy, um, to use the American term for it, uh, and that seem to be feeding into the market activity. I mean, there's a lot of concern right now about the Italian government budget, because there you have the third largest economy in the Eurozone has never really recovered from the you know financial panic of 2007 2008 and then the eurozone crises in the years after that um you know still very sluggish growth uh you know high problem you know large problems with non-performing loans uh saddling bank balance sheets uh very high unemployment and um you know you you have this fight going on where you you have a political development with a new government taking power there that doesn't really seem to have any clear idea on how to revive growth and i i do have the sense that investors here in europe are responding to the sense that you know particularly if there's even the slightest concern that the us or asia are going to start wobbling uh you know the growth story on the ground here in europe might not be quite so self-sustaining that maybe they have again gone through a cycle where instead of uh, launching in domestic reforms here in Europe that would create a a genuine European growth engine, they've fallen behind on that process. uh, And so they remain very vulnerable to developments elsewhere. Right. There there hasn't been the the kind of reform that was needed. Meanwhile, the debt has expanded. And I think that's that's something we see in in Asia as well, and particularly in China, a failure to undertake the reforms that, that are your sort of your seed corn for the next growth cycle, um, and you've accumulated all this debt, which is a drag on the economy, um, you are incredibly vulnerable to, uh, to uh, a, a slowdown or an, a, a, a shock from the financial system. And the Chinese economy is naturally slowing as a result of demographics and uh, the stage of development they're at. They're now a middle-income country. So slower growth coupled with a uh, high debt burden and high levels of investment um, is, is a bad combination. 
Well, we have been talking about global economic growth worries, but we're going to have to leave it there for today. I think we have covered about as much uh, global mayhem and disorder as we can get to uh, in one podcast. So I am going to thank my colleague Hugo Restall for joining today. Thanks, Hugo. Thank you, Joe. And uh, thank you all for listening. Please follow us on Twitter. I'm at, at Joseph Sternberg, all one word, and Hugo is at Hugo Restall, all one word. Uh, and be sure to follow this podcast, Foreign Edition, from the Wall Street Journal, wherever you get your audio content. Thanks for listening, and we will chat with you again soon.